Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She is the Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. This show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? This podcast is recorded on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabewaki, and the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. This land is covered by Treaty 13, signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Historical and ongoing legacies of colonization produce injustices for Indigenous communities. Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Listeners, I am so thrilled and excited to introduce our guest today, Calvin Hudson Wong. He was born in Edmonton, Alberta, in Canada. Following a, quote, practical career in advertising, he transitioned to behind-the-camera work after studying filmmaking in Los Angeles. He created the multiple award-winning health education platform, Real Life Stories, for Johnson & Johnson, where it received unanimous praise for the intimate, authentic, and inspirational portrayal of people living with health conditions. He then founded the education company Super in 2018, applying his unique combination of talents to continue producing educational documentaries to impact health-affected communities. I am so thrilled to have you here, Calvin. It's a thrill to be here, Carmen. (laughs) And the last time we saw each other, we were wearing masks. So at least, even though we're on Zoom, we're not wearing masks. And it was... I can see your lips move this time. So I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to see see face-to-face. So we filmed, we filmed this documentary we're going to talk about today. And the funniest thing, well, it wasn't that funny, but we didn't know we were in Hard House and we had no idea they were testing those yeah. chimes yeah. for like a soda. Yeah. And then they also started mowing the lawn. <laughs> and I believe they were shooting one or two Netflix films like on that weekend as well. So it was just a very complicated shoot but we did really well and i think the film turned out really really well so i'm, I'm quite pleased with, with how that worked i'm so excited to talk about the film before we do that i usually have an origin story if i've met you i think we started chatting a year ago i don't remember what month yeah yeah honestly it was it was fairly i think it was like mid was it in the summer, maybe, of that of the pandemic? And I'd, I'd been so interested in finding academics and researchers and experts on the subject matter that we'll talk about. And I'd found you through an, a, a number of articles, plus through some research with some of my friends in the social work. They're like, oh, oh Carmen. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. So, so you came with high regards and all of my research confirmed it. So you were, you were one that we, we definitely were happy to, uh, to get involved in the project. So I remember the first time we chatted, I was on my couch and we just chatted a long time. We were very excited about this idea and then the documentary got funded. Yeah. And who funded it again? Uh, it was funded by a program, which is an aspect of Heritage Canada. It's called the oh. Digital Citizens Contribution Program. And it's very much focused on programs that are either educational or research-based that are focused on disinformation and its impact on social cohesion. So it's a very, very important social, you know, both at a public health level as well as from a, you know, a, a cultural and heritage perspective. So it's great to see that these types of initiatives are being supported, you know, because a lot, I think a lot of people who are working in this space are very community-oriented it's very grassroots and the, obviously it's very it's a huge struggle to get funding for a lot of projects that can actually have the scale to uh to have a, a meaningful impact in the population so it's, it's great that the government is doing this that's amazing and there's going to be a link to the documentary with the podcast before we get there though i want to know 
if I'm in an elevator with you going up, up a couple floors mm. or flights, I was like, floors is in an elevator. Flights is if you walk up this. I don't understand why <laughs> you go up floors in an elevator, but if you walk, you're going up flights. Anyways, <laughs> if you're going up a couple of floors in an elevator, what do you say when people say, hey, Colin, what do you do? I just tell them I make films about health and uh, that it's been an interesting journey to provide a platform or a skill set where you're giving people who don't typically have that um, prominent voice in society a means to, to communicate, a means to engage people. It means to humanize their experiences and their journey so that it benefits other people with a lot more understanding and compassion. So mm, I want to get more into that. <laughs> I would definitely be like, tell me more. Where's these videos? And listeners, you'll be able to look at all the videos. Okay. My next question to you is, are you in Toronto right now? Yes. Okay. I'm based out of Toronto. Whereabouts? I'm I'm in Toronto's east side, like the Riverdale, Leslieville neighborhood. Okay. So it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's it's. I don't want to over promote it because it's kind of Toronto's best kept secret right now. <laughs> See, I, I'm a West End person, so I'm like, no, 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 my neighborhood, Mount Dennis, the Northwest, and 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 we're we're good with a lot of people believing that. We're very happy with a lot of people <laughs> in that the West is where all the trendy stuff is needs to be because it, we have a very good vibe out here, which is uh, which is probably less hustle bustle of the West. But uh, well, where I am is has a lot of the a lot of the charm. It's kind of Northwest, so I'm not really no <laughs> hustle bustle here. So I'm going to show up <laughs> at your house. You better in Lesbell with my. <laughs> I can't wait if we ever get out of a lockdown. So I'm going to show up with my time machine and there's physically distancing. And I'm going to say, take me back to the time and place where you thought, I want to make documentaries with a mission to amplify voices of people who have health disparities. Like, where would we go in the time machine? And the time machine can have multiple stopovers. Well, it's a very interesting, there's, there's a, yeah, it's a very interesting point in time, I would say. It was probably the point in time where I was very unhappy with my corporate life in that, so I worked in advertising um, and I worked for an organization that was, you know, very corporate and commercial in its orientation. And we did work in the healthcare space. And the the thing that was very missing within the way the business would approach healthcare was that it really lacked the care component. It was very much around the health business. And when we were interfacing and finding out, you know, within the healthcare system, what do the healthcare professionals really care about? And what what are the things that drive them to motivate them to do what they do? Because a lot of, you know, physicians and nurses are working very tirelessly to you know, bring care and bring relief to a lot of these these individuals suffering from sometimes very terrible health conditions. And their time was always stretched into doing administrative work, right? There's a, a huge a burden around, you know, because it's such a large, complicated system around documentation and protocol and all those things, which, you know, there's a, there's a certain need for that, obviously, but their real motivation for wanting to do that work is, is because they want to help people, right? It's, it's often a very noble and altruistic cause. And I saw industry as not really being a force that was reminding them of that. Here's the results of the work that you do. Here's, here's how this has changed the life of your patient in a way that you probably don't even have any idea because you see them for between five and eight minutes in your office and then you write up the chart and then you see them go. So what I found is as a really powerful mechanism to really reinforce the great work that they're doing as well to give them the fuel to continue to push through that and really focus on those core values of we're here to provide care. You know, we're not here for prestige or, you know, there's always the, everyone in society is always concerned about money and, and, and income and livelihood. But I think at a certain stage, you kind of move beyond all of your practical needs being fulfilled. So you really are looking for those, those core 
motivational value-based reasons. And so I wanted to shine a light into the work that they did and, and really take that patient perspective and say, this is kind of how you've changed my life. And as sort of a bit of a, a way to, to have gratitude and, and a way to acknowledge the work that they're doing. Conversely, from the patient perspective, a lot of people living with health conditions are often very, very stigmatized, either by themselves or the community who lack understanding or empathy around what it means, or actually within the healthcare system where they're not seen as individuals, they're seen as sort of numbers within the system. So we really wanted to make sure that all of the sort of stakeholders within that patient journey, that that patient pathway, had an, an opportunity to really understand what it's like to go through that, to live with the condition, and to interface with a system that can be quite intimidating or quite unuser-friendly or can be a little bit biased around individuals that it doesn't fully understand what their perspective is. So that's kind of where a lot of that, to me, added so much more fuel to what I love to do, which was, as a kid, I was directing music videos. I did a lot of things as you do as a young kid, but coming from an immigrant family who were very, very academic in themselves, um, the prestige and the sort of expectations around, you know, be a lawyer, be a doctor, do something practical kind of forced me in a sidetrack from that sort of thing that really motivated me. Um, and then after years and years of years of doing advertising marketing, I just said, you know what, it's time to take the leap. And uh, the stuff that, that I have done, I think is, is quite transitional or um, translational into, you know, this, this sort of business model that super runs by. And, uh, and so we've been doing that ever since. That's amazing. I still don't know where we are in the time machine. So are we in Edmonton? When we start no, making... we're in Toronto. Ah, okay. We're in Toronto. You did, I'm did, working you, for... did you go backwards though? You said as a kid, you made documentaries and music videos. I, I, I made mostly music videos and I did sort of weird, weird little art videos. And, you know, you know, as you're sort of experimenting with the medium, but that was really, I'd say when I made the decision to say, I want to do filmmaking full-time, I really want to focus. This is a niche that I don't think is really well-addressed or well-understood. It's very complicated, particularly doing health documentaries in that there's a lot of health documentaries that get very high profile. I mean, you see them all on Netflix and they're very, very weak on the science. They're very weak on the you know, the, the, the sort of consensus, the, 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 the expert consensus around the globe, a lot of them are very sort of um, personal essays, personal experience, personal opinions, and sometimes that can be quite misleading to the audience. So for us, our process, particularly in health, where I think health disinformation is so destructive, mm. and we've seen, I mean, we've seen the war path of, you know, unmitigated, rampant, and very toxic narratives around vaccine or, you know, even our regard to health authorities like, you know, the CDC or, you know, Health Canada or you. And then we're, we're getting all these politicians now mm-hmm. within the crisis that we're in who are making calls or decisions. And sometimes they're weighing around the public health, you know, implications, but they're they're trying to give equal footing to maybe some of the commercial interest or some of the, the other interests. And you, you really, I think in, in challenging times like this, you kind of have to prioritize to say, you know what, sometimes business needs to slow down in order for us to move forward. And I think that's really where the pandemic has, has put it. And it becomes very visible when you take a look at some of the provinces and how they're running across the country of who's, who's being a little bit more science driven. So that's really amazing that I, I love that all this happened in Toronto. I'm still wanting to get you <laughs> for a drink and a patio one day and learn more. What I want to get to is for the stigma question I have for you, maybe it's obvious, but you decided to apply for funding and you got funding and make a documentary about anti-Asian racism and COVID-19. Yeah. Do you want to talk about about why you thought this needs to be addressed. I mean, it might be pretty obvious, but this was over a year ago and you were like, what sort of, what was, Yeah. I guess, you yeah. know, the spark or yeah. 
you know, the it takes a lot of energy to put together a proposal, to do a documentary in the middle of a pandemic, to produce it all within a year. And so I feel like yeah, there must have been some um, inspiration. And, you know, I don't know if you want to talk more about the importance and the urgency of addressing these issues. Well, there's, there's a number of factors. Obviously, I'm of Asian descent. So I think a lot of the the news and a lot of the incidents around the increased and more overt aggressions against the, the Asian community were ones that really struck a chord with me. And when I took a look at a lot of mm-hmm. the narratives and the stories out there, I didn't really feel there was a a full address of some of the context of why this is happening. I didn't really feel it told a, a very personal or an emotional story from the perspective of someone who's been very, very much traumatized by the incident. And then I think also for, for what we do around health disinformation and really understanding some of the mechanics of how a lot of these things are being so rapidly disseminated and amplified through, through social media, um, we thought this might be something that can fit within our wheelhouse. We typically don't do things that are that are less sort of acute as far as, as health conditions. Um, but this is one where we, we all like, there's a small team of three of us and we all decided, you know what, this is one where I think makes sense for us. Let's propose a project. Um, we have the skill set to tell the story. We're helping to represent the community from someone who is a member of the community. And we have a certain process and a language that allows us to really interface well with experts like yourself, researchers, um, academics, scientists, that can really help us build not just a strong narrative structure that we think will really appeal to a broad audience, but also one where we can translate a lot of the the language in a way where everyday people will be able to, to understand it and be moved by it, and then hopefully disrupt some of their, their pre-existing attitudes or make them more aware of some of their own biases so that there's much more of a positive uh, motivation or positive inspiration for people to rally and and help try to contribute doing something about it. Thank you, and that's, that's said so well and clearly. I, I want to ask you to describe to the listeners. Sometimes I, I ask the question, "How does stigma impact people?" You know, and there's many ways. But I, I guess, what do you want the listeners to know about the documentary that you think they should know? about the impact of anti-Asian racism in this time of COVID? I think people need, first off, need to recognize that racism isn't a spontaneous thing that comes from an event. It, and you know this, obviously, in depth. It's it's the field of your expertise. But, I mean, when it comes to anti-Asian racism, I think there are a couple factors that I think are really critical for people to understand. It's been existing in this country, if not many of the westernized countries for centuries, I would say, even. And we are all somehow inoculated or or socialized into a lot of these norms, which are quite problematic. I personally have encountered a number of these things, both in an overt fashion, but also within the institutions and, you know, these large corporations where you see you see a lot of these things that, that a lot of the, the experts are saying, you know, the microaggressions, you're seeing the bamboo uh, ceiling, you're seeing you're seeing all of these portrayals of Asians being quote unquote model minorities who, you know, they're good workers, but they're not great leaders. Or, you know, we'll we'll give them a a place, but we won't allow them to lead. Or and, and these are things where I always thought maybe I'm a little bit paranoid here, maybe I don't want to cause too much trouble, even though I am sort of a troublemaker. <laughs> but they're ones where you're you're they're so subtle, they're so they're so ingrained in things that you don't you don't really have a lot of evidence to put forward except for the culmination of a lot of these experiences and how they add together. And I mean, you do want to make sure that you're not being paranoid, you're not being yourself being predisposed to say, well, people are out to get me. But you do notice it and you do notice the patterns going forward. The other component that I think is so important around stigma is you can't necessarily look at the person who's facing stigma as somehow accountable to their victimhood. It's not always something that's thrust upon 
you and it's not something that you can just say, well, you know, why are you being so weak? Um, these are things that I think, particularly with the Asian community, there are a lot of cultural norms where there is a, I guess, a socialized notion of saving face or, you know, not not wanting to raise attention or bring undue um, shame to the family or to the, the broader community. And I think that in itself is problematic in that it translates into things like, you know, we're not as strong. We haven't been as strong advocates for the Asian community as I think other marginalized groups have, have been. And I think that's largely because of a culturally, we don't, we don't stand up for these things as, as, as strongly as I think we should. And then B, we get pigeonholed into this model minority thing where we, you're doing fine. And then we're also used sometimes in certain situations like, oh, well, there's another person of color at the table and they're doing just fine. Why, why are you complaining? We've got, you know, we have representation or what have you. And it's not, it's not really always a fair representation. And it's always until you see systemically that, you know, the memberships of these giant boards in these big corporations or on these decision-making juries switches into a much more inclusive environment where you have a greater spectrum of representation. You're not really going to see a lot of change yet. It could almost be tokenistic too. If it's one person, like, well, we already have our one person of color. You're like, um, yeah. Toronto is actually majority people of color. So if your board exactly. is not majority people of color, you're actually not reflecting the demographics the reality of of the situation and i mean that really falls into the construct of like who's who's wanting to control the narrative and why is that perceived as a threat of undermining you're actually just strengthening like there's nothing there's no there's no better decision that can be made when you have a much more diverse set of thinking and uh, different experiences and, and perspectives to bring to the table it's funny because you take a look at examples where you're like oh yeah what a great what a great idea we're we're a big soft drink company and we're going to do a TV ad that shows, you know, inclusion and rally everyone. And we're going to show this celebrity top model and they're going to give one of the guards a Coke or whatever brand it was. I think it was Pepsi. <laughs> yeah. And then they're like, well, who made that decision? And then you go through the history and you're like, oh yeah, every single person who was either a creative or an executive that brought us that TV commercial was a Caucasian. Mm. No one who represented a perspective to say, hey, these people were involved with Black Lives Matter or these people are from the community that was involved in Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And so it became very performative. Yeah. I think that language or that that tone deafness, people like it's just appalling that these decisions, something that would have cost that much money, that was like a multi-million dollar international global campaign that was really supposed to connect that brand, that company to a movement that was going on. And it just completely came off as opportunistic and inauthentic. And it just it, it got yanked, I think, within 24 hours. So it's just an example of... It's it's everywhere. I, I you know, am talking a lot with my partner about all these companies making money off of pride. Mm -hmm. Are you giving the money to LGBTQ organizations? Are you just slapping on a rainbow to get gay money yeah. like it feels so performative ex extractive almost even exploitive. more than performative exploitive, I Exploit think is yes because you're like okay we know in this pandemic even even before the pandemic lgbtq folks experienced more homelessness a yep. lot of social and health disparities yep. are you taking the rainbow money and doing something to give back to the community part of your proceeds right. you know that you're making money off of pride month right or or maybe giving it to local artists or local businesses especially with the pandemic so many people i know in the lgbtq community who are artists music producers, bartenders, waiters, business yep. owners have yep. gone out of business and been unemployed for more than a year. Yep. And it's Pride Month. Yep. Where are all the people like TD and Scotia who support Pride? Where are all their money going? Yep. I, I don't really really don't know the last time i saw a pride parade which is the last time we had a pride parade two years it was ago, so no, disheartening because there's like walmart floats and like crest <laughs> toothpaste <laughs> and i was like what do you do for lg 
LGBTQ rights. Like, what are you, yeah. like, why are yeah. you in the parade? Like, yeah. I don't understand. At least why? have a value statement. Do you know what I mean? Is it, it's just. <laughs> give money, like give marketing. money, yeah. take some of your huge profit. Anyways, just not to derail the topic to that, but just saying how corporations can be benefiting off of, of trying to be, you know, LGBTQ positive or, you know, pro Black Lives Matter, but they're not engaging the communities or giving back, you know? Right. I, I wonder from your perspective, because you said earlier that this anti Asian racism is, and, and I hadn't heard that term before, the bamboo ceiling. And you're talking about the barriers to leadership, I think, when you said that. I've never actually. Yeah. For, for, for example, for, for women, it's the glass ceiling. For people of the Asian community, they call, it's, the term is a very legit term. It's. Yeah. And, and I'm sure it's been used in a lot of s- discourse. Yeah. And for maybe Asian women, it's the bamboo ceiling uh, below the glass ceiling or, you know, above the glass ceiling. Oh so, you know, but I wonder for you, you know, I, I'm sure the listeners have heard that there's been an increase in anti-Asian racism and there's definitely been statistics on that. I don't know if you wanted to talk about how that's shifted because you said there's not necessarily similar kinds of movements like Black Lives Matter. Although I have been seeing recently, especially with the Stop Asian Hate signs, that there has been some Mm -hmm. activism this year, I think, more than last year. I don't know what Mm -hmm. you're, what what you've... I would say there's a lot of efforts out there to really represent the community. But I think a lot of it right now, because I think the magnitude or the unwillingness to push it forward because I think the default was we'll get by that now that it's hit this crucible of overt hate crimes, like random acts of violence, people being pushed on subways, old women, old elderly Asian women being punched in the face, just on the street, just for minding their own business. Again, those, you know, those are horrible examples, but there are other forms of, of this aggression, which is creating such, um, a terrible sense of anxiety and a terrible sense of, of lack of, of belonging, lack of safety, personal safety, even in when they're in their own communities and, and, and just this overwhelming, you know, psychological sense of, of blame, whether it's, it's legitimate or not, there's just this anxiety that, that many Asian people are, are going through right now. And it's, it's, it's completely unfounded. It's like, what, what do I have to do with, any of the origins of this i'm just a canadian citizen and i think a lot of a lot of that is is being pushed so into the into the mainstream right now but it's not i would say i hate to do this as a comparison but it's certainly not because we we track sentiment we track quote unquote keywords in the digital atmosphere we're not seeing it trending as or sustained in its trend or its movement that I think it's it's keeping it as top of mind as it is. And and part of that is is we need to as a community, we need to support one another and we need to continue to amplify these these things and keep things in the news, in the discourse, push it with our 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 policy people, our our government people. But I would say, you know, I, I would hate to see it fizzle, the movement fizzle without actually some sort of, you know, formalized translation into well let's teach more of this in schools you know we need to do something to uh, protect younger generations and and any of our other generations to to be more much more critical about their their reflections of their attitudes and their beliefs and uh, be aware that a lot of the consequence leads to you know systemic oppression and and violence so we gotta we gotta stop it it's so terrible. And you just made me think if COVID has exacerbated pre-existing anti-Asian racism, you know, which I think it has, you know, it's what we've talked about in the documentary, it was already existing and it's become much worse and much more violent. And those hate crimes are just like infuriating, heartbreaking, just like unbelievable, but of course believable because we have a history of you know, oppression and genocide, <laughs> all these things. Yeah. But I, what I, I worry, to your point, is that, and, and we'll get to hope after this, but I do worry that is it after this pandemic or, you know, when we're, quote, post-pandemic, whatever that might be, is it has there been a deeper kind of ingraining, I don't know if that's a word, of racism towards 
people of Asian descent. Like I, I worry that if we don't actually eradicate into Asian anti-Asian racism now, when we see that there's hate crimes and we see that it's gotten so much worse. In a year, like you say, the attention is already dropping, it's not trending anymore. Are we just kind of forget about it, but maybe it will have been made worse, like people will have been harmed and we'll have this sort of like COVID right. amplified anti-Asian right. racism. If we don't get rid of it, or I don't know, get rid of it seems simplistic, but if we don't really keep working at the roots of this. Immunize, we need to immunize ourselves <laughs> from it. When we liken disinformation to an epidemiological model, we often say it's almost like a virus in itself, or it's almost like a cancer that invades your body. And unless you address it, it's going to continue to grow and become more and more toxic to whatever organs or, you know, organism in which it's invaded. So it's really, really important that this does get some sort of strong attention and some systemic revision because there's a couple of factors. It will continue to foster greater sort of, unless it's addressed and dealt with, and, and it will foster these, you know, online communities where they're constantly pumping out hate narratives or, you know, re-stigmatizing narratives or in these echo chambers where people are, you know, they get trapped into this K-hole of just continued reinforcement of very, very negative beliefs, often very false and outlandish beliefs, so that, you know, people start believing that pizza parlors are harboring pedophile rings, or that, you know, members of the government are all, you know, of some cabal. These are often very extreme kind of cult-like <laughs> indoctrination <laughs> things, but it's happening. And then the second component is the unfortunate thing with the Asian population is we don't have comparable to, you know, other groups that are represented in media. We don't have a lot of superstars that can basically bend a knee and say, hey, I'm going to protest this because the majority of, of the, the sports players in this major league are of one community and we can bandy it and, and continue to raise the visibility. That's that's, I think, a bit of the issue with the Asian community. I was talking to one of my friends in San Francisco, and she was telling me, you know, who could we approach to help amplify the film and help get the film into schools or just more visible in, in media? And we were going through the short list of, you know, Canadian, Asian, of Asian descent, people who are in the news or in the media or visible, and we're like, there's not a huge... Hmm. list of, of individuals where it can keep that <sighs> highly visible. Mm -hmm. And that has a lot of impact around how do people empathize with this community, right? We're not seen as telling a lot of our own stories because we're not often main characters in stories. I mean, what's the last big Asian movie that we've seen in the last while? Crazy Rich Asians, right? Yeah. But it's one. <laughs> and then we get, yeah. you know, we get a, we get a peppering of, you know, great breakout stars, but they're not necessarily, they're, it's great for visibility, but they're not necessarily telling the stories from the community. Um, so it's still going to take a lot more work to say there's, there needs to be much more visual representation, both on screen, mm -hmm. as well as storytellers behind the screen. And I don't know if you read recently, you, you know, we're in the final season of Kim's Convenience, mm -hmm. cult hit, Canadian hit, brought to you by CBC. They've since this is the last season and a lot of the cast members have been reflecting on it. But one of the, the prominent stars, uh, Simu, Lee, Louis, Lou, I can't even say his name, Simu Lou, I believe. Yeah. He actually posted something on a very long Facebook post around his frustration with the writing room being predominantly non-Asian and, you know, how some of the narratives were not rich in the sort of cultural background of a first-generation Korean family and people with authentic experiences telling those stories or at least informing those stories. So again, even when we do have visibility, is it, wow. is it to your point, a bit tokenism? Is it the fantasy of what the community is or is it the community rep representing themselves? Mm. You are so good. I am so like moved by what you said because until people are telling their own stories, yeah. 
what are people really getting, getting other people's ideas of those stories, you know? So I want to, I want to, I know time is, is coming right. to an end and I have yep. one of the most important questions now, the last stigma question. Are you ready? Before we get to the wild cards, <laughs> what do you want the listeners to do to be part of the solution? I'm assuming you want them to watch the documentary. Yeah. Watch the documentary. It's awesome. Why do you want to wa watch? Why do you want them to watch it? Or what do you want people to do right. who are listening, who maybe they may be part of the Asian community. They may not be part of the Asian community. What would you want people walking away to say like, I'm going to do this one thing right. that maybe they're walking their dog right now, listening to the podcast. I walk my dog listening to the podcast. Hence why I give this, example every podcast i've asked listeners to tell me if you listen to the podcast doing other things let me know so i can use that as an example but for the person listening to this podcast right. walking their dog how can they be part of a right. solution to this so the the film resolves on a keynote which i think is not specific to any community in particular and it, it lands on the whole concept of solidarity and allyship and i think that's a really important Thing to to demonstrate and to really show how that action creates essentially a, a riptide of positivity through the community. It brings greater cohesion. It brings connectivity. It brings understanding. And so within the film, hopefully everyone here will have a chance to film, but it gives a really direct example. It's a small example that just a, a fellow business person on the same block as Andy, who is the, the primary um, protagonist in our film, who extends a very positive and easy gesture, supporting increasing visibility and allowing people to create a support, essentially a support program, you know, where he essentially, I don't, should I give away the story or should I, um, or should we talk about more high level? Because high, more high level, let's not give away. There's a protagonist who experienced uh, hate crime because targeting him because he's Asian. And then there's a neighbor who did this wonderful act of solidarity. You're going to have to watch it to get the, the juicy details. <laughs> but it's, it's, it lands on this very positive note and a very practical note of, here are some simple things you can do. Think twice when you hear something that may be perceived as biased or racist and act, like nip it in the bud. Like those are things where you can correct mm -hmm. somebody and say, you know what, that actually is a bit of a harmful thing to say and that's actually not true. Introduce someone to someone of a different community, encourage them to reach outside their immediate bubble. I use the term bubble because we're always in either a neighborhood bubble or a community or what have you, but reach outside your bubble and get to know someone who is very different from you. Someone who's of a, either a marginalized community or one that has a different ethnic or cultural background, someone of a different faith perhaps, and get, spend some time to get to know what they're about. And you'll actually see there are 99% of the time you'll have more in common than you will have different. Hmm. And that's so core to really understanding and humanizing each other to say, hey, we're all in the same blue marble that's floating around the sun and we're all trying to just live happy lives. Why are we doing this by creating more problems for them than others? So how do you actually broaden your perspective? And then lastly, it's like, just, just stop retweeting hateful things. <laughs> like don't, yeah. don't become a victim of disinformation because the, the the algorithms on there on online, which are amplifying a lot of these mm -hmm. these notions, a lot of these very poor negative narratives, are preying on your biases. So be smarter than that. Don't contribute to disinformation. If it's something that you disagree with, disagree with it, but do not retweet it. Do not amplify it. I had my first negative tweets at me this week. Yeah. <laughs> One of them was. I tweeted in support of Naomi Osaka and yeah. the lack of mental health support and the, the, how all of the Grand Slam sort of yeah. like kind of banded together to pressure her and threaten her with disqualification and, and how 
after she actually left, right. they did a really lame apology. And I just retreated that the US Open. I just said, I really think you can do better than this, this apology. I I had to stop notifications. I like yeah. I had hundreds of people like agreeing with it, retweeting it, disagreeing with it. And yeah. yeah. It was almost equal, the number. So I just actually muted notifications. And then I was on another tweet by the Lancet, which is a really good medical journal from an article I I co-authored with them on future directions of LGBTQI research. And somebody wrote under it this horrible comment. And I was like, <laughs> this week? Really? Like, I, I don't know. I, I think I kind of fly under the radar on Twitter. I'm not verified. I don't know. Twitter, you can verify me. But um, <laughs> I don't know. It was weird. I was like, wow, people actually, you know, I see people writing horrible things on other people's <laughs> tweets. And, I, you know, it's very interesting how... How rapidly and how people are, it How unafraid people are of, of saying horrible things. <laughs> Just like, don't do that. Don't be that person. Well, this is the thing. <laughs> this is the thing. This is the thing with digital, right? It's so easy to be negative. It's so easy to be a complainer on on social media. And every time you feel compelled to say something negative on social media, write something positive instead, right? I like that. That's a good action. It's a simple. It's a simple check to say I'm gonna. I'm very angry right now. I always go online when I want to complain about my cell phone coverage sucks or I'm getting screwed over on whatever. I always feel compelled to just complain and I don't know, bitch about it. Can I use the word bitch? On this <laughs> oh yeah, people have sworn on this podcast. Right. <laughs> but when I when I have the, the the impulse to do that, or if I'm very angry about something, I think I think it was you know how do I actually turn this to a more constructive or more positive energy and start focusing to translate negative energy into positive energy because we need that right now totally everyone is kind of suffering everyone's feeling isolated and 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 exhausted and we're all you know by that thread trying to make it to that the, the final when things reopen and, and things can get a little bit more back to normal but i think if we just focus our energies more in that that space totally. we'll lift everybody up we'll just lift everybody up I love that. And I, on Twitter, I always, I don't know why, I don't know how I have a Twitter thread the way I do, but I have a lot of people saying, I got tenure, I submitted a grant, or like a student's like, I won this award. I always just say congratulations to everybody. Yeah. Because like, everybody likes to be celebrated. For like, sure. You know, so I just say congratulations, congratulations. I'll just say like 20 congratulations a day. And it's like when we used to see people in person, I could almost always authentically and genuinely like something about somebody every single person i see yeah. maybe they got a funky style maybe they got a cool earring maybe they got nice shoes like if i feel inspired i'll just be like nice shoes right. nice earrings right. you know just like, say nice things because it just can make someone's whole day if you're feeling kind of glum and, and yeah. somebody's like hey i i yeah. noticed this cool thing or congrats or yay you i'm celebrating you it just feels like yeah lift each other up you know it also like reflect on the fact that you've lifted somebody up that must give that it's got to give you more energy than saying hey i made that person feel like garbage right just just, <laughs> just split the switch and say it's all about raising everyone up and and supporting one another and if that's the mentality of, of instead of being jealous or territorial or whatever the the fearful all of these negative emotions. And I think we'll just have a way. It sounds so hippy dippy. <laughs> it sounds so <laughs> yeah, hippy dippy. I used to be a big hippie. So but it's, it's so good. true. And it's so easy. Like compliments are free. It's not costing you a cent. So go give them out. Yeah. Give those coupons out. Totally. It, I mean, I don't know. When you were looking for something that you like, you always see something, you know, especially if you're shopping. But anyways, yeah. So that's great. I, I love that. We're almost at time, but I want to ask you some wildcard questions so the listeners can get to know the real you. Sure. All right. Let's do this. Number one, what are you watching on Netflix, Hulu, Crave, whatever your jam is? Oh, what am I watching right now? It's funny. I don't think I'm watching anything. <laughs> I'm so. That's amazing. I'm like, what do you do? <laughs> I, I feel like I've exhausted a lot of like, I'm not watching any specific television shows. Usually when I get into a TV show, I get very immersed in the TV show. I'd say the last big one that I thought was remarkably well done was It's a Sin. I haven't seen that yet. Yeah. I think that's on Amazon. Oh, you have to watch it. It's 
phenomenal. It talks about the AIDS crisis in yeah. with a small community in the UK. It's it's beautifully done. It's it's powerfully done. It's heart opening. It doesn't matter if you're part of the LGBT community or not, or you identify within the community. You, everyone should watch this film because it really shows the heart of the people that are affected by it um, and th- how it just... I, I mean, need to watch that. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> you absolutely need to watch it. Put it on your list immediately. And then what did I watch that's kind of like fun and silly? I think the last thing I watched on Apple TV was uh, Ted Lasso. <laughs> I don't know that. It's uh, Jason Sudeikis. He <laughs> plays a American American football coach, and he goes over to the UK, and he becomes a, a football, like a soccer coach. So it's like fish out of water. But he's it's very folksy and it's charming, and it's very lighthearted. And, and nice. And the irony of that story is that it started off as a marketing Thing. I think it was for what was the, the hockey league or something like that. It was he was a character that was created for a TV ad. Wow! And then, and then it was a popular commercial character. It was Jason Sudeikis. So they pitched it as a TV show, and it got made into a very heartwarming TV show. So if you have oh. Apple TV, then it's a it's one of the the better shows on there. I'd say I don't have it, but that's I always like heartwarming. Right now, I'm watching two things. All of the drag races right now are on an old we're on season seven because we never watched season seven and we finished season 13. Yeah. And then we're watching the Down Under and then we just started Legendary. It's about the, it's a voguing. It's very fancy, like high tech oh, yeah. voguing. Is it like it's, Pose? It's, is it like dramatized like Pose or is it? No, it's like a competition. So is it like a, it's. It's like, you ever watch like. America's Best Dance Crew. Did you ever watch that? No, I'm afraid I didn't. <laughs> are you? Are you? Are you beat? Are you still gonna? <laughs> I used to love. I don't dance, yeah. but I like watching them. I don't know. I really like watching amazing dancers, and I like um, I like watching voguing and and that whole and the costumes and the makeup. Like I just am so, I'm so impressed by it. Although it's a very kind yeah. of stylized and gentrified way of looking at uh, you know the ballroom culture but it's just mind-blowing to see people's talent yeah. so I just I don't yeah. know I, I get inspired when people are doing something they love to do and it, they're so beautiful and talented and just stunning you know and there's a whole there's a whole culture mm-hmm. there's a whole like which which it's so it's so well done and people are like, what, this is going on? I had no idea. And it's, it's so enriching to see these, especially in these big urban centers where there's a lot of communities, like diverse communities where they can create their own stories and create their own, you know, events and culture. And like we, I remember way back, I'm talking about myself a little bit now, (laughs) way back, I wanted to see the translation of the ball culture in Mm -hmm. Toronto and how that, you know, it's, to your point, it's it's such a beautiful art form. So we actually found a bunch of local mm-hmm. Vogue and ball uh, ballroom uh, uh, dancers, oh, and we did a music video. It, were they House of Monroe it, folks? This music or video. Other folks. You know them, yeah. TK and the, the rest of the House of Monroe. Yeah, so yeah. So they were they were in it. Yeah, I know they're film, amazing. It's a tiny little music video slash film. It traveled all over the world. Um, we got screened in Berlin. We got screened in like San Francisco. It's. It's a bit, it's a bit, oh, it's a bit aged now, but it's, and like, and this is like, I'm. Oh my gosh, send it to me and I'll link it to this podcast. Too. I think our budget was tiny. It was like $400, but <laughs> like, but it got into all these. Yeah. And it's, I'll age myself if you guys see it, but it's a, it's kind of an interesting, <laughs> you'll recognize amazing. some of the House of Monroe folks. Yeah. yeah. No, I know, I know uh, those folks, is, it's amazing. And yeah, I, I think, you know, there's something Oh, it's very bittersweet when you have something really underground then get on Netflix and yeah. you crave and you're like, oh, like, you know, even like drag and yeah. stuff like that. So, you know, it is, it is what it is. So yeah. at this point, we can't hoard, we can't, we can't hoard those things for ourselves. Like they should be celebrated. As long as it doesn't become so commercial. Like a pride that it. <laughs> Yeah, like, you know, with, with the drag race now, the critiques are like, 
now to be successful, you have to be rich on Drag Race because the con- like people are getting designer. It's instead of people. I mean, some people do like, you know, and, and I I love all the queens. And you can also see the ones who have been able to afford designers to make all the costumes versus making right. it themselves. And and then it kind of just turns into capitalism, you know? You. So, so it's, you know, there's always, yeah, it's, it is what it is. It This is, I mean, I think it's great that it's becoming more mainstream in the way that people aren't going to be surprised or shocked and they might be more accepting and they might relate to some of the heartwarming yeah. stories because the, the heartwarming stories I mean, they're heartwarming a lot of times because they're about social exclusion of LGBTQ folks. So if more people see the impact on people's lives and well-being from stigma discrimination and then how people kind of rise up and 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 do these different art forms, like whether it's voguing or, or drag or um, yeah. dragged yeah. to create community and, and re re invent themselves you know i think that's amazing because that shows like both stigma and and resistance so anyways i i agree with you there's this like fine line though when you're like okay it's you know it's yeah anyways my last question is do you have one last thing a word of advice uh wisdom quote something that you that has helped you on your journey that you wanted to share with listeners i'd just say be be humble with what you're doing and yeah, hu- humility. A good storyteller is is a storyteller that can share can share what they've learned, or they can help others share what they've learned. So it's not always about yourself. Um, sometimes it's about supporting others and letting them let their voices be heard. And you do that so well with your documentary series. Oh, thank you. Well, we've got a couple in the hopper. So, I'll, uh, and one of them actually, I wanted to talk to you about because. It's it's probably one where I think some of your insight and your 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 academic research would would help inform serophobia. It's always an honor to work with you. So yes, so <laughs> listeners, you're gonna have a link to the new documentary. What flowers they bloom? Yeah. What flowers they bloom, which is unbelievable it's so powerful about COVID-19 and anti-Asian racism and then we'll also have a link to super and then maybe just maybe the old voguing video <laughs> sure I could convince Calvin to send, send it to us thank you so much for taking the time today Calvin thank you it's an honor and it's always great to see you thank you so much ciao Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us again for more conversations with stigma leaders from around the globe. If you want to listen,